Hi, it's Joe Lowry. This is a Q&A episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. I requested uh, questions for this episode on Twitter and on LinkedIn, and I got an overwhelming response. I will not get to every question that was submitted on this uh, edition. I will do my best uh, try to keep trying to keep these podcasts at 20 to 25 minutes. But before we get started, I also want to just say to all my friends, mostly on the other side of the world, that are celebrating the Lunar New Year holiday, uh, Happy New Year yet again. Shinian Kwaila, Gongshi Fazai. And with that, let's get started. The first couple of questions, um, I don't really fully answer because either it's too early to know or um, I just need to get uh, some insights from some other people. But out of respect for the, these were two of the first questions that came in. So Vance Brantley asked me, and and again, I will paraphrase some of these questions for both brevity, brevity and a little bit of clarity. What would a new constitution do to lithium production in Chile? And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know, I have quite a few friends in Chile. They are probably better positioned to wax eloquent on what could possibly happen in Chile. But I also want to say that I think it's really too early to tell. Uh, The Atacama production we have seen over the past year has uh, enough drama, uh, again, to play on the drama in the Atacama well-worn line. Uh, Things aren't going as well as either of the major producers down there thought. And this specter of what a new constitution would do could just further complicate things. But I would also say that uh, I think the Chilean people uh, are reasonably bright and that, um, you know, this is this is not lithium certainly isn't as important as copper is, but lithium's certainly an important business down there. And uh, I don't think uh, when it's all said and done, uh, the people of Chile will will kill, quote unquote, a golden goose. But. That's just my opinion, and again, I will continue to follow this. It's a good question. It's just too early to tell. So that question was asked on the Anchor app, which is pretty simple. You just go to the Anchor app and click on message and leave me a voice message. So thank you, Vance, for that. Uh, Jason asks, what do I think the China virus impact is going to be on the lithium business? And again, uh, I'm answering this uh, kind of on the Lunar New Year. And uh, I, I think it's way too early to tell on that. I, I, I lived in Asia and traveled to China from Japan often during SARS. And I will say that if, if one harkens back to 2002, SARS had a huge short-term impact uh, on things over there. But again, this is just, it's a timing thing, no matter what. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the reports on the BBC and some of the U.S. outlets. It doesn't seem like uh, this is going to become a pandemic. So I, I do think that given the 
tender situation the the China market is as far as is it at the bottom is it, when are things going to turn around uh, this this may further slow business short term so it could have a negative effect but most of the colleagues that I talked to in China are still saying that they believe that the China New Year time frame uh, the lunar New Year time frame was when you would see the price uh, ultimately bottom. Uh, Wang Xiaoshen from Gangfen is quoted in the Financial Times recently as saying he thought it would happen this year, so he wasn't quite as specific as some of the analysts. But in any in any way of thinking, uh, we are close. If we're not at the bottom, uh, the China virus isn't going to help help speed things up. But again, I, I just think it, it might add a couple of months to uh, what will be the natural course of action uh, in that market. We have a, a couple of related questions coming next. Uh, the first one is from Spencer via Twitter, and he asks about uh, rainfall in the Puna operational impacts, pond damage, et cetera. And uh, for those who aren't clear, the Puna is the high altitude, the Altiplano of Argentina. Um, Liven operates there, or Cobre operates there, WAC and Gangfenner building, Kachari there. And it, you know, this is the time of year, it's summer down there. This is the time of year where it normally rains. And uh, in most years, the rain isn't a big deal. They recently had a very a short period of very heavy rain, and some people on Twitter uh, started kind of acting like it was a cataclysm. And uh, so uh, I, I was actually in Argentina last week, but I did not go up to the Puna, but I do have a lot of friends in the Puna. So I contacted them and asked them for their perspective, got a lot of pictures back. And yeah, there are pictures on Twitter of muddy roads, of, you know, some things that, that look pretty bad. But this is not uh, not that unusual down there. I mean, I, you know, and I, I used to work for Livent. They operate up there. Uh, rain can be a problem and has been in the past from time to time. But what I'm understanding this year is that, you know, the operations have experience. They have enough inventory of critical materials that they need to get via road already on site. So if there are some short-term road closures, uh, they're prepared to deal with that. Uh, I have pictures of uh, the weather the last couple days and it was sunny and fine. Uh, so I think a couple of things. First of all, uh, the, the quote-unquote rainy season lasts a little while, so it's, it's not over. But if we're only talking about uh, the recent rain event, it probably isn't going to have a significant, if any, impact on production. It it is It's an inconvenience. It's an inconvenience to the, the people up there for transportation. Uh, and yeah, it's it's probably the with Twitter now. It's it's easy for people to to snap a picture and put out a headline, uh, an attention grabbing headline. But uh, I would say that uh, certainly you don't have to worry about ponds. Uh, some of the pond issues, such as Oracobre had a 
few years ago. I don't think uh, I don't think we're that's going to happen. And the next question um, is related to this, and it comes from Right Jake One via Twitter, and he said, "Will Lack have the same challenges?" as Oracobre. And the reason I, I say it's related is that it's, it, it also, you know, kind of brought into it the, the pond issue and, and, and will there be negative impacts because of the rain? And um, I think that I'm going to answer the question uh, a little, a little differently than maybe was the intent. Um, Lax pond design is, is much different than Oracobre, but I think in this rain event, both of their ponds will be fine, but will lack have the same challenges as Oracobra in making battery quality? Um, I, you know, people lump lack and Oracobra together because of proximity, because they're both on the same relative, uh, in the same relative area in Hui province on the same basic solar. And uh, it really, doesn't have uh, anything to do with what what will happen with lax operation. What what Orico, what problems Oracobre had? It's a different era. The design's different. The ponds are completely different. All you have to do is go online and, and look. Uh, it was publicly available. In uh, in Lack has a different type of team. They have a team that has significant experience. Their CEO is from Livent. Some of their technical people uh, worked for Livent in the past and uh, are, are really experts in lithium processing. And when Oracobre started up, this, this was really a, a company that hadn't done lithium before. And, and I think that uh, the troubles that they have had just um, made it much more clear again to the people at LAC that they had to up their game and that uh, they needed to, to be aware of uh, some of the shortfalls that uh, their predecessors, and, and not just, not just Oracobra. I mean, if most people don't have the perspective because they weren't around, they're looking at lithium over 20 years ago. But Livent had a very uh, tough uh, go when they started up uh, Ombre Morito. So... In the end, they wound up producing great product, but it was not a, a snap uh, thing where they just turned the turned the project on and it, it was fine. It, it took a long time, and um, I think the the other point I would make on the comparison between Oracobra and Lack is that Oracobra didn't have a partner like Gangfen, who has deep processing experience, even with Brian. And a lot of people forget that uh, Gangfen processed SQM's brine shipped to China for over a decade. So with that, I would just say, uh, uh, right, Jake, I wouldn't worry too much. Uh, I think LAC will have the same challenges that any new project has. That's clear. There's no getting around it. New projects are not easy, but some of the self-inflicted wounds that maybe their neighbor had, I don't believe they will have because of the experience of the team and the quality of the partner. And so I will move on to the next few questions. The next question uh, is, again, timely. Uh, 
but one that uh, is only I'm only able to answer it with with kind of my best guess, and that is now that benchmark has reported spodumene price in Australia is less than 500 down to 480. How low do you think uh, spodumene price can go? And um, the, my perspective on that is that everyone knows there's a large inventory of spodumene in China uh, that was purchased at, at, at higher than 500, in some cases higher than five. 500, 600, and in very few cases, probably now seven or 800, because um, if you look at the various uh, relationships, there was some very high prices uh, not that long ago. And now that we've fallen through five into fours, you're really getting to the point, and I will re refer to the FT article that Henry Sanderson wrote uh, a week or so ago, and Wang Shen, I already mentioned a quote he had in that article. And then there's another quote from, from Ken Brinsden at uh, Pilbara talking about the tough conditions. And, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that uh, price can stay, uh, go to, it, it can go to the low fours, but it can't stay there because the new projects and the, and the spot, I mean, ultimately from all these new projects is going to be needed. It's a matter of timing. And so people just have to, you know, know that, in the short term, some of the new players are going to take their lumps. There may be some changes in ownership structures because of that. But ultimately, price is going to have to go north. Uh, in, in my opinion, it's, you know, the long-term price uh, for Spodgemy that you have to have to both ensure that the new players make a reasonable return and enough of a return to do their expansions because all that hard rock is going to be needed too when you go out to 2022, 2023 and beyond. So I, I really believe that the long-term spodumene price has to be between 500 and 600 to sustain the industry. And in based on supply and demand later on, it could be higher than that again, uh, probably will be. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy situation now. And, um, you know, that is unfortunate for, um, some of my friends down in WA, but, uh, I'm just, you know, saying that as I've said in writing and on these podcasts that, uh, I believe long-term all the mines that started up, uh, are ultimately going to need to run and going to need to expand. So with that, I will go to the next question, which is from Doug Fowler, and he asked me about prospects for U.S. lithium other than Thacker Pass. Um, I guess he feels like I, I've touted Thacker Pass many times because it's my North American favorite, but he wants to know about, for example, Piedmont. Is is it onto a good thing? If Piedmont is onto a good thing, why didn't ALB or Livent? develop the spodumene tin belt since they have history there that is an interesting question but i would say that you know Abelmarl has gone back and forth and, and there's some complexities to the king's mountain uh situation so you know a few years ago they were saying that king's mountain was the second best resource on the planet after green bushes and then they did the Wojina deal. And at the time, they were saying Kings Mountain was the second best on the planet. Wojina certainly did exist, but it wasn't on Albemarle's list. So things things changed there. The thinking changed there. Uh, we can speculate as to why uh, Luke and team made the decision they made. But uh, 
yeah, certainly, um, you know, Kings Mountain, uh, that area could be reopened. But the the thought on Live End, I mean, Live End's mine uh, in Cherryville, North Carolina, was played out. And, you know, where um, Piedmont's looking is close, but it's not in exactly the same area. And the fact that Piedmont is taking a look and trying to develop a project, uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't draw the analogy that just because Livent didn't do it, it's not viable. Livent made a decision at the time to develop Ombre Muerto, and they have enough issues of their own. They are um, probably a long way from uh, having a hard rock asset. They they need to get their strategy and their ship righted, their expansion at Ombre Muerto done before they look at becoming a a two resource company and their, their uh, next resource may be what they're trying to do with E3. Although, uh, and there's a question about that a little later on. Um, I'm not a big, uh, I'm not a big believer in what they're, they're doing specifically with E3. Uh, and that's not a broad indictment of, of black boxes. That's just a, a particular point on the, partner that Liven's chosen to at least put some money in. I wouldn't say that they've, they've cast their lot with E3, uh, but they are certainly, uh, we're certainly willing to put some money in to see what happened. So hopefully uh, that answered those questions and uh, we will continue. The next question comes from at Seabury1, a.k.a. the voice of reason, Chris Berry, who uh, texted me a question about um, where was the bottleneck in the, the supply chain uh, with respect to Mercedes saying that they didn't have enough batteries uh, for one of the EV models they wanted to bring out. And, you know, the best thing for me to do was to ask former podcast guest Sam Jaffe, who uh, I consider to be uh, much more conversant in this area than I am. Uh, so I'm just going to read you Sam's tweet. Um, and it says, car makers are aligning with tier one battery makers and tier ones are oversold. This explains VW's link up with smaller and newer manufacturers such as Guoshan in China and Northvolt. And secondly, the EQC, the Mercedes model, sales are underwhelming and Daimler is trying to blame it on the above battery shortages. Sam further waxed eloquently uh, on another tweet that said the undersupply problem is crowding out small buyers. Commercial building ESS, for instance, can't get tier one cells. It's going to be solved by 2022, thanks to the enormous factory build out. And Sam, a shout out to you for the responses. Hopefully you don't mind me reading your tweets on the podcast. But if you were uh, shy about uh, making commentary, I don't think you would put it on Twitter. So thanks for that, Sam. I, I guess I would just add to that by saying that... Um, this is why the whole movement uh, towards uh, an electric future, uh, be it electric transportation or energy storage systems for renewables. I mean, this is, there's a lot of growing pains happening all over the supply chain. Uh, we see it in lithium, we see it in cathode, 
and we see it, uh, you know, in the whole battery build out. So um, that's why I always talk about, you know, lithium. Uh, the optimism is warranted, but the timing is always a question. And I'm very bullish out the next few years. I mean, if you look back, almost any credible person will tell you that lithium demand grew 40, 45,000 tons in 2019 in what a lot many considered to be a terrible year because stock prices were down. So if, if, if that's a bad year for growth and it's 40 to 45,000 tons off a 270,000 ton base, that's pretty good growth. And we're just getting started and it's going to take time for all these disconnects in the overall supply chain to be dealt with. And, you know, I, I really appreciate Sam's comments and uh, Chris, I appreciate your question too. Uh, Chris Berry is a long-term friend of the podcast. He's actually a four-peter. So uh, with that, I will get to the final question. And that is from Cynthia. And Cynthia wants to know when I am going to have another woman guest on the podcast. And, you know, ever since this podcast started, uh, there's been criticism that there hasn't been enough uh, female representation. And um, I am going to respectfully disagree with that in that, uh, you know, when we initially started the podcast, I did have a woman co-host and a woman producer, uh, I have decided it's just simpler as a proposition to get the podcast out to, to, to do this my myself and uh, gone down that road. But it's not that easy to get um, women on the podcast. We've had multiple guests. Uh, I think most recently, Allison Dye from Kempfis, and I do intend to have Anna from Sigma on very soon, as soon as logistics allow. Um, and, and I would love to have more of the highly placed women in the lithium world, battery world, but there just aren't that many of them. And I have been turned down. Uh, so, you know, Cynthia, if you and your uh, colleagues uh, want to ask some of uh, the more highly placed women to be on the podcast, I'm happy to invite any credible uh, lady on the podcast and uh, hopefully I'll be able to get uh, uh, the person I, I most want to get on the woman I most want to get on the podcast is actually Vivian Wu from uh, the CEO of Tanchi and I've known Vivian for a, a long time we don't see each other that often given we live on opposite sides of the world but certainly uh, we do cross paths from time to time maybe this year at the lithium conference I would also uh Happily have Chloe Holzinger back on at some point this year to get a catch up on what's happening in battery. Um, next time I'm in Perth, uh, I, I will try to reprise our Lithium Valley episode. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's other people out there too. It, but some companies uh, don't allow their uh, employees to be on a podcast. I would love to have a Tara Berry or a Kate Bennett on the podcast, uh, but it, it's not it's not for lack of desire to have uh, some relative balance in the guests. 
it's it's more really about the fact that um, some people have declined and uh, you know it's it's a challenge that I think the industry is working through but uh, there certainly is not at the present time anywhere near a balance if you look at the top five or six lithium companies and look for uh, highly placed uh, women executives uh, there there just aren't that many and uh, Vivian obviously with uh, TNT is the shining example uh, one of the top four uh, lithium companies does have a woman CEO but in the other the other thing I would just say is um, this uh, podcast is not about political correctness and uh, I, I just I have two daughters and uh, so I, I have uh, sympathy for the issue when it's raised, but uh, that's not my primary motivation for being here. My primary motivation for having this podcast is to disseminate uh, lithium information and information in adjacent spaces to as wide a group as possible in a cost effective manner. So with that, I am going to say thanks for listening. I've probably gone about 25 minutes, and I think that's probably the limit of Alexei Zawadzki's ability to uh, listen to this podcast. So shout out to you, Alexei, uh, if you got this far. This has been another edition of a Q&A version of the Global Lithium Podcast. If you have questions for future episodes, please submit them either via the Anchor app, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.